Good morning. I'm really glad that uh, Bill opened with that particular scripture. The lust of the eyes, right? The lust of the flesh. The boasting of what a, what a man has or desires to be. You know, it's interesting. The, the devil only has but so many weapons. One of the things you learn when you're, when you're training to protect yourself, whether it be martial arts or boxing or something of that nature, you, you have to know that there are weapons. There are things that might come at you. And you learn, you respond to those things in a prescribed way. You actually train over and over and over again for a middle punch, for a head punch, for a lower grab. You're always expecting these things because you've trained to expect them. Spiritually, the devil has but really three good weapons. We're going to see that this morning as we're in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to see that the devil... Well, he really hasn't changed his attacks all that much. In fact, what you'll find in Genesis chapter 3 is that the devil often goes to the weakest person he can find and questions God's word. And then he appeals to our flesh and to our eyes and to our pride. So if you train in God's word, study to show yourself approved. If you train in anticipation of these attacks, if you know they're coming and you go over and over and over again in your mind and in your heart and in your spirit, your response to these known weapons, you will be able to preserve your soul. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you desiring to hear from you and through your word we pray that you would speak to our hearts. We need to be In training today, we need to be encouraged because we don't want to fall. You've encouraged us in the book of Ephesians to stand, to put on the armor of God, and to remain standing. And so we pray that as we see now our ancestors, Adam and Eve, and their failure to stand, their their failure to obey, may we be encouraged to know that we do not need to follow their lifestyle. We do not need to follow their failure because we have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have the ability, your word, and the ability and the strength from you to persevere. So we ask for your strength, we ask for your spirit, we ask for your word to be implanted in our hearts that we might always respond in obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's very hard for me these days not to look at things through the lens of conflict or combat. In training, you just always have to be prepared. Here's the biggest problem that I see for Adam and Eve in chapter 3. They, 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 they were prepared, but they chose not to lean on their training. You see, they had been given a very important command. The command was that you could eat from any tree. You could eat of anywhere in the garden except one place in the center of the garden. Apparently there was this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And God made it abundantly clear to Adam. In fact, he commanded him not to eat of the fruit of this tree and told him that if he did, he would die. So there's, there's no ambiguity about whether or not this was the right or the wrong thing to do. God's word had made it abundantly clear. And now we get to chapter 3 and we read in verses 1 through 5, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord had made, the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I want to point out they already knew good. It was the evil that they didn't know. So here's the thing. The deception of sin is what we're going to be talking about today. The deception of sin. And you do have what it takes in Jesus Christ, through the power of the Spirit, to protect yourself from the deception of sin. You do. But today, consider it a training session. 
We're going we're to go over the responses that we should have to these temptations, to these questionings, to these deceptions. And it starts with the serpent. The serpent tempted the woman. The ancient serpent is a way of referring to the great dragon or the devil or Satan himself. And I can remember as a child, one of the first questions I had when I heard that there was a serpent in the garden and the serpent was, was, was talking to the woman, I thought to myself, well, is it a serpent? Is it a snake? Is it a dragon? Is it, is it the devil? What's going on here? Well, it is possible that the serpent originally stood upright. And we'll see when we get to verse 14 of this chapter, when the serpent is cursed for his participating in this situation, this temptation, uh, that he will now crawl on his belly. And so it's possible that actually the serpent stood upright, uh, that he could speak is kind of weird, right? That he could speak distinguishes him from all of the wild animals of creation. So what are we really talking about here? I don't really think we're talking about just some ordinary serpent. Couldn't be. Apparently, Satan possessed or at least used the serpent's body to approach the woman and deceive the woman. He took the form of a serpent. And we know that Satan himself, according to the scriptures, can transform himself into an angel of light. So this shouldn't surprise anyone. And later on, I almost feel bad for the serpent, not that I love serpents, but because of the serpent being used in this way, there's a curse that's put upon the serpent. But we'll get to that, and we'll get to that in, uh, in, in future studies. But here, remember that Satan is appearing as a serpent. He had originally been created as the highest angelic order, a cherub, the anointed cherub that covered. I, I, I encourage you to look at Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 14 through 15. Actually, much of the chapter there talks in allegory about Satan himself. You know, he was originally created, that is the devil, was created to serve God and minister to mankind. All angels were. All angelic beings were created for this purpose. But he had rebelled against God's purpose and he had defied God's will. And we know this from Revelation chapter 12 as well. Now why? I mean, to try to figure out why people do things, it's a very dangerous practice. You really can never get inside the head of someone and figure out their motives. God knows our hearts. He knows our motives, but you'll never really know why someone does something. I could suggest that perhaps it was because angels were not created in God's image. They weren't. We were created in God's image. Perhaps it was because angels couldn't reproduce after their kind. Perhaps it was because uh, he proudly sought divine authority over God. We don't know what it was, but whatever it was that caused Satan to rebel against God brought him to a place where he was cast to the ground by God as punishment for his sins. Again, Ezekiel 28. This allowed Satan the opportunity to tempt mankind to sin. And you have to understand that even in sin and rebellion, God is working because he works all things together, actually for our good. Amen? Even this entire account here somehow works for our good because God is in control. God is working through these things. He wasn't surprised that, that Satan fell. He wasn't surprised that he took on the form of a serpent and tempted the woman. He, he wasn't surprised. He could have prevented it all if he wanted to. This is all going according to God's purpose. I want to remind you in the world in which we live, there's a lot of things going on around us that we probably despise. Corruption in our government, confusion in our culture, debauchery in our public schools, so much going on. Horrible things happening in cities now. But I want to remind you, God could intervene at any point, and, and, and not that these things please God. But don't think that because those things are happening that somehow God is not in control. If God allowed man and woman to sin, as we'll see, then quite frankly, God was in control then. He's in control now. Amen? Remember that when you start to despair and lose hope. Remember when you look at life and you look at the culture and you look at our, 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 even our government and the things that are going on within our nation, remember that. Remember that God is in control. But all of this was happening, and Satan chose to destroy those that he had been created to serve. And I think that is one of the signs of a true rebel against God. They, they destroy those and the lives of those that they've been called to serve. When someone falls in ministry, 
It's almost always because they're seeking to destroy the lives of those they're called to serve. In government and corruption, it's because they're destroying the lives of those they're called to serve. When you look at Satan, that's exactly what happened. He's, he's created by God to serve mankind. Maybe that was it. Maybe he just didn't feel that he should serve mankind. Whatever the reason, he had come to the place where he decided to rebel against God and to destroy, or at least try to destroy, mankind. So we look at his first attack. And his first attack was to question the word of God. Listen, it's always going to be his first attack. It's always going to be his first attack. Remember I mentioned there are only so many weapons? There are only so many ways a body moves. There are only so many punches that can be thrown at you. So you you, you have to know the first one's coming for your face. The first one that's going to come against you is going to be questioning the word of God. It's always the case. That's just the only way that Satan can gain any power over an individual. You've got to eliminate the word of God. Now, look at the church, the state of the church in the world today, and specifically in our nation, or even in Europe. And one of the first things that the devil was able to do in these churches is undermine the teaching of the word of God and replace it with entertainment or replace it with something other than the word of God or philosophy. Once you remove the word of God, we are in the word of God today, amen? Once you remove the word of God... From the work of the Spirit, it no longer is a work of the Spirit. It becomes a work of the flesh. Dare I say, it can even become a work of the devil. So the Word of God. And that's why here at Calvary Chapel, and in Calvary Chapel Ministries in general, there's such an emphasis on the Word of God. That needs to be the focus. I've seen good ministries fall into the trap of thinking they need to entertain people on a Sunday morning or or a midweek service. I've seen churches think that the word of God isn't enough to get people out to church, so we need something more, something else, something in addition to. And then what that does is undermine the truth of God's word. The word of God is not only enough, it's everything. It's all that we need. It's not that we can't enjoy good music and worship. It's not that we can't enjoy fellowship and social activities. We do all of those things. But at the center of our activities, the reason we exist as a church is to teach and preach the word of God. Well, Satan's first attack was to question that word. Look at it. Verse 1, latter part. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? There's so much there. Think about it. He tempts the woman to question God's wisdom concerning his will for them. And that's what happens. The devil, the the world, others will question God's wisdom concerning his will for us. And his will is communicated through his word. So if someone says, well, did God really say that that is a sin? Did God really say that marriage is between a man and a woman? Did God really say that homosexuality and sex outside of marriage is a sin. Did God really say those things? Because it's not popular to say those things today. Maybe we shouldn't say those things, some would say. But that's the serpent speaking. That's the serpent speaking. You understand that, right? The serpent will say, did God really say? You need not be confused. One of the things that frustrated me, and we're going to go back a couple presidents, it was actually President Obama. He said it, so I'll mention it. Uh, when confronted about the subject of homosexual behavior, uh, he, he basically said that we shouldn't get our, our, our cultural mandates from uh, some obscure passage from the Bible. And when he said that, I realized, number one, it's not obscure. And that's the serpent speaking. I just went Pentecostal on you there. Didn't you see that? That's the serpent speaking. Nothing against the man, but that's the serpent speaking. Anytime anyone questions the word of God, you can ask questions of the word of God. God wants you to. He'll give you answers. When you question the word of God, that's the serpent speaking. So he tempts the woman to do so. Now, first of all, God communicated to the man, before he even created woman, what the rules were. And God didn't just say... To the man, don't eat from the tree. He commanded the man not to eat from this tree. You understand there's a difference? Oh, don't eat from that tree. And 
a command not to eat from that tree are two different things. So right away, she's already taking away, she is at least in her mind, sort of taking away from that command by getting into this. Now, he tempts the woman to question God's limitations on their personal freedom. And that's another thing you see in today's world. That's the other thing the serpent's going to do. He's going to question God's limiting our personal freedom. Oh, what a horrible God that would tell you that you can't do this, you shouldn't do that. We should be our own gods, and therefore we can do whatever we want. So we live in a culture today, and that's the voice of the world that I'm parroting here. That's the voice of the world telling us, if it feels good, do it. Did God really say? Do you want to limit your personal freedom to do whatever you want? This is America. We can do whatever we want. Well, no. There's a difference between liberty and freedom. You know, there, there's, there's a, a liberty to do things, but your freedom comes with a responsibility for your fellow man and a, and a responsibility to the word of God. That's how this nation was formed, on that principle. So that's why we have laws. The laws aren't designed to legislate morality. They are designed to show you what's right and what's wrong. That's what the law of Moses does. It can't make you do the right thing, but it can tell you what's right and what's wrong. At least that's a good place to start. So what do we do? We change the laws. Did God really say, oh, you you can't eat from any tree? Well, that's not exactly right either, is it? What is the serpent doing? He's exaggerating God's word to make it appear unreasonable. Go back with me for a second. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? How is that anything near the truth? Why is he talking about that in such a broad way? Why is he saying, oh, you can't have anything? You can't do anything you want. And that's not true. That's an exaggeration. And people today will look at the word of God who are trying to undermine it. And they'll say, see, the scriptures tell you you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't. And that's not true. There are some things that are bad for us that are wrong. There's sin. But the Bible doesn't tell you you can't do anything. It's kind of this idea, and it's happened in religion over the hundreds and hundreds of years that religion unfortunately damaged the cause of Christ. You don't do this. Don't do that. Don't. And, and, and the, the don'ts of, of what we were told many times had nothing to do with the Word of God. And so they would add to the Word of God oftentimes. Not just take away from it, but add to it. You can't do this. You can't, you can't eat meat on a Friday. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Could it be the serpent speaking? You're going to hear me say that quite a bit today. Because it's not always just a flat-out lie. Sometimes it's an unreasonable expectation. You can't wear pants in church. Well, I hope you wore pants in church. (laughs) They would say to a woman, you have to wear a skirt. Where do these things come from? Ah, you see, we start to understand. If we're in the Word of God, we can say, where is that? Give me chapter and verse. Oh, well, no, God did not say that, you might say. So understand something. It's very important to know God's word so you don't listen to the serpent's voice. So he exaggerated God's word. That's one of the number one things Satan loves to do. Exaggerate or add to the word of God so that it appears unreasonable. And then you think, oh, I can't do that. Any tree? He suggests that they were or let's say this way, he implies that they were restricted from any tree in the garden. Did God tell you you can't do anything good? Anything that's fun? You see what's going on here? They were free. They were free to eat from any tree in the garden except one. But Satan didn't present it that way, did he? The serpent made it seem as if God wants to take away everything. Doesn't want you to have any fun at all. Doesn't want you to do anything that's enjoyable. He doesn't want want you to enjoy your life. God wants to take away all your fun and all your your good times, and your life is going to be so boring and miserable. Oh, you know what? You're going to college. Come on. You You can't experience college if you're trying to live for Christ. Just take a few years off from being a Christian. Live your life, and then after that, go back to serving God. Does that sound familiar? Because a lot of young people have listened to that voice, and that's the serpent. Well, the women, the woman... She begins to question the word of God. Look at verses 2 through 3. She does begin to question the word of God. The seed is planted in her heart, and it says, 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden. But God did say, and she's right about that, that you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And that she's referring to the particular tree, the tree with the fruit that they weren't allowed to eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, she also goes on to say, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, it's true that if they ate, they would die, but it, it, I don't remember hearing anything about they couldn't touch it. In fact, they were supposed to tend the garden. They were supposed to care for the garden. Do you remember anything in the previous chapter that Adam was told? Unless I missed something, I don't remember any restriction on touching it. Now, I would admit that touching it might lead to eating it, but that doesn't make touching it wrong. Are you with me? Did God say if you touch it, you're going to die? No, he said if you eat from the fruit, you'll die. What does that tell me about the work of Satan and how he works in, in, in the lives of Christians and in the lives of people he's trying to bring down? Well, it tells me that he adds to the word of God and causes us to add to the word of God. He wants to get us away from the word of God. So the woman begins to question. She defends her freedom, first of all. She defends her freedom. She gets into a conversation with the devil. Big mistake. That, in fact, is her first mistake. The first mistake is that she answered the serpent at all. Now, I can't help but use some karate illustrations. If someone throws something at you or tries to punch you, and you move out of the way, is that effective? It is. It would be a good thing the next time the devil tempts you in that way that you don't respond at all. Why would you get involved? Walk away. The first mistake was for her to answer, to engage in any way, shape, or form with the serpent. Her second mistake was to try and defend God's word to the devil. Don't do it. You don't have to defend God's word. Use God's word. It is written, as we'll see. It is written. So don't get involved in conversations with the serpent and don't defend God's word to the serpent. He knows God's word and he will twist it, add to it, take away from it, do everything he can to get you to doubt it. And that's what's happening here. The, the conversation that's happening between the woman and the serpent is the problem. If she would have got out of the way, if she would have walked away, this wouldn't have happened. Are you with me? She admits God's one limitation on their personal freedom, but her third mistake was to admit anything to the serpent. Again, why is she having this conversation? Why admit anything? Her fourth mistake was to exaggerate God's limitation. And this is brought on through the temptation of the serpent, of the devil. Because, oh, did God say? And then, oh, any tree? And then, oh, now she's getting kind of focused on, yeah, why can't I eat on, from that tree? Well, he starts to doubt God's word, and she exaggerates, exaggerates God's limitation. And no point, as I've said, did God ever say anything about the fact that they couldn't touch the, the, the fruit. So she begins to doubt. Obviously, she's doubting. She's starting to question. That's the point. She also takes away from God's word in this way. She says, did God, but God did say. No, God didn't say. God commanded. Can I hear an amen? God didn't say. God commanded. Already the authority of God's word is being questioned. It, there's a difference between say and command. Please understand that. Oh, does it say anywhere in the Bible that this is right or wrong? No, God commands us to live uprightly. How about that? Big difference. So already you see the seeds of doubt penetrating her heart, and she begins to take away from the word of God in this way as she's doubting the word of God, and then she adds to the word of God by suggesting they can't touch the fruit. That's what will happen if you engage with the serpent. I'm telling you, the best defense is to walk away. That is the number one way you can avoid a conflict and be victorious. Okay. Sometimes you can't, but in this case, you could have. So this is the path to rejecting God's word. This is how we get to a place in society or as individuals or even within the church where we're questioning God's word when we doubt, when we take away from or add to the word of God. And I've gone a long way to make that point, but that is the most important thing you learn today. Don't do it. Don't engage. 
and don't get into a place where you're beginning to doubt or allowing yourself to doubt take away or add to the word of God. Actually, in Revelation chapter 22, we're told the fate of those who do in verses 18 through 19. Now, Satan's second attack, that was just really his first attack, question the word of God. But the second attack was to question the heart of God. The word of God or the heart of God. Many times, people will talk about God not being a loving God. They'll question the heart of God or what his agenda is or that he's a a, a hateful God. Now they're not questioning just the word, or they are questioning the word by saying those things, but they're also questioning the heart of God. Look at verses 4 through 5. Remember, this is training today. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I want to point out, He tempts the woman to question God's truth concerning his will for them. He's questioning God's truth. He flat out contradicts God's word, the word that God gave to the man. He's calling God a liar. But you notice he didn't start that way. He didn't say God is a liar. He said, did God really say? And then we go through the doubt in the heart of the woman, and then his second attack God's a liar. You will not surely die. That's a lie. We know it's a lie. Does the devil lie? Amen? Does the devil lie? Yes. He's the father of lies, according to Scripture. Jesus taught us that the devil was the father of lies. So that's another reason why you don't want to engage, because he uses lies to deceive you. Do you know he also uses the truth to deceive you? How can you win? How can you win if you're going to engage when you don't know whether you're dealing with truth or lies? Ah, the word of God. The sword of the spirit. You need to know the word of God. You need to be able to say, no, God did not. Not only did God, he he didn't just say it. He commanded us. Yes, God did say this. He did command this. And go away, devil. Get behind me, Satan. Don't engage. If you find yourself in a conversation with someone and it's the serpent speaking, walk away. It's the best advice I can give you today, best counsel I can give you. If you hear the serpent's voice, walk away. Oh, pastor, but I'm trying to win them for Christ. I understand that and you need to be led of the spirit, but you're not going to win the serpent to Christ. So you need to know the difference recognize these attacks. And when they come, recognize your best defense is to walk away. Oh, are you afraid? Well, I'm not going to say that I'm not afraid, but I fear God. The fear of man or even the devil, that's a snare. I don't fear that. I fear God. And if you fear God, walk away. Okay, well, he's the father of lies, and he starts with a doozy. Verse 4. You will not surely die. There's nothing true about that statement at this point. It's a flat-out lie contradicting the word, the command of God. And I want to remind you that all the word of God is God's commands, his precepts. Then he tempts the woman to question God's motives. Oh, he likes to do that. Why is God doing what he's doing? He tempts the woman to question God's truth concerning his will, and then he attempts to tempt the woman to question God's motives for limiting their freedom. It's all about freedom. Have you noticed that? Our our nation was built on freedom. What was once freedom to serve God has become freedom to rebel against God. It's not the same thing. Freedom to sin is not the same thing as freedom to serve. We have freedom to serve. We shouldn't have freedom to sin. Amen? Well, This might scare you a little bit. He uses the truth now. See, he used a lie, but now he uses the truth to imply that God is withholding something from them. But he uses the truth. And this is the scariest thing. When something or someone uses the truth against you, it's more dangerous than the lie. He doesn't tell her one thing in verse 5 that isn't true at this point. 
Let's look at it again. Is this true? Now, we know that the lie comes in verse 4, but what about verse 5? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, is that true? Well, let's look a little further here. We'll see in verse 7 when we get there that when they eat of the fruit, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So their eyes were opened. Satan said their eyes would be opened, and that's true. He hasn't lied. It was also true that they would know good and evil. If you look at the description in chapter 2, verse 9, we're told that the Lord God made all the, all the trees, all the kinds of the trees, right? And in the middle of the garden were the, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, yeah, that's true. There's nothing deceptive about that at that point. It's the honest-to-goodness truth, which scares me more than the temptation that's a lie. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Also, when we get to the end of chapter 3, in verse 22, it's called, we're told there, uh, the man has now become like one of us, God says. And he says, knowing good and evil. So God testifies to the truth that Satan is using to deceive the woman. My point in going over this and over this and over this is training. Learn to recognize that Satan will use lies, but he'll also use the truth. He'll use lies to question God's word. He'll use the truth to question God's motives. If you're with me, say amen. We're training here. We're preparing ourselves for the attacks. We know they're coming. We need to know what they are so we know how to respond. And again, get out of the way. Walk away. You're not going to win this fight on his terms. Well, all of these things were true. Doesn't tell her one thing that isn't true. But he omits an important truth, and that is that they would surely die. That is not mentioned here. See, unlike God, they would know good without the power to do good. See, you could know good, but not have the power to do good. And that's what would happen to them. And unlike God, they would know evil without the power to avoid evil. See, God knows good and evil, but he clearly has the power to do good and doesn't do anything evil. They would eat from this tree, and then they would have no power to avoid sin and no power to do good. That was left out. And there you have a final point on Satan's attacks. It's always the truth with a little thing missing. And it's the lack of something that really works against the heart of a person when they're being tempted. Something is left out. Something is omitted. Oh, it's all true, but something's not there. And I've said this before, the half-truth is a, or excuse me, yeah, the half-truth is a whole lie. Even though all of this information is true, it's still a lie because it doesn't include the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that's why you have to be careful, even of a truth from the serpent. The second attack, the first attack. First attack was questioning the word of God. Second attack, the heart of God. I want to point something out just in case some of you are thinking at this point, well, Pastor Tim, what are you talking about? This is just a story. This is, you know what this is? This is a fairy tale. This is a myth. This is an allegory. I just want to point out that two clay seals were found in the archaeological digs at Nineveh, an ancient city. And they reflect this account. One of the tablets shows the man and the woman being tempted by the serpent. The other shows their expulsion from the garden. So going back to ancient times, they took this literally. Why do we question it? Could it be the serpent speaking? So what happened? Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Let's just stop right there. She disobeyed God. Is it any surprise? She listened to the lies. She engaged. She didn't walk away. I mentioned it already. 
told you there were four mistakes that I identified. Why answer the serpent at all? Why defend God's word to the serpent? Why admit anything to the serpent? And why, why exaggerate God's limitations? That creates doubt. She did all those things, and so now what does she do? She, she fails. So do you see why it's so important to be prepared to know what's coming and to get out of the way? It's so you don't fall. It's so you don't fall. Well, the woman fell. She was tempted to eat the forbidden fruit, but it was through the, Satan's, it was through the serpent's deception that this happened. He tempted the woman. Now, why? And, and, and listen, this might come off as chauvinistic, but hear me out. Everything in Scripture gives us the indication that, generally speaking, generally speaking, first of all, I want to say that, remember what I said last week, that women were the pinnacle of God's creation, the ultimate creation in creation. But not to take away from women, she was more susceptible. And I think it's true, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, that in general, women are oftentimes more susceptible to deception. Why is that? I think they have a, a, a better heart. I think they're more open to people in general. Again, this is the generalization. Not all men and women are the same. But I think if you look even within the, the parenting relationships, women are more nurturing, more generally. They're more emotional. It doesn't make them weaker. In some ways, it makes them far better than us. Men. But it does make them more susceptible. And the Bible testifies to this truth. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. You know, it wasn't the man that was deceived. The man disobeyed, proving that men are continuing to be stubborn. But here's the thing. Oftentimes, women are more emotional, more sympathetic, more vulnerable. And cults are far more successful in seducing women than men. This is just a fact. Paul acknowledged the vulnerability of women in the church. Peter acknowledged the vulnerability of women in the church as well. I'm not going to get into that, but if I, if I were to read those scriptures, it just reinforces the same point. And so Satan, through the serpent, tempted the woman with fruit that was good for food. Good for food. That's, that's the first thing we're going to look at. Good for food. Now, I want to remind you, when Satan tempted Jesus, he tempted Jesus to disobey God and turn the stones to bread, to satisfy his hunger. You see the connection there? The fruit is good for food. Jesus, turn these stones to bread. You're hungry. What are we talking about? Well, John talks about it in John, 1 John 2.16 is the cravings of sinful men, the, 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 the desire for something, the cravings of sinful men. Now, there's a, an ism, a way of thinking called hedonism. Hedonism is living for that which our fleshly natures desire to have. And this is one of the biggest problems in our world today. Hedonism is alive and well. People are just living for pleasure and for self-satisfaction. This is the, described by John as the cravings of sinful man. That's men and women. And we're going to be tempted in the same way to satisfy our sinful cravings. Right? But what did Jesus do when the temptation come, or came? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He used the word of God, didn't he? Did he get into any conversations, some deep theological arguments? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's how you answer the serpent with the word of God, if you're going to answer him at all. Do you understand? Say amen. Okay. So there's a connection there. Satan only has so many weapons. Look at the second one. He tempted the woman with the fruit that was pleasing to the eye. Remember that Satan tempted Jesus to reject God and gain the world for himself, and he showed him all the kingdoms, all the kingdoms of the earth. He said, these I'll give you if you just bow down and worship me. It's written. What does it say? You shall worship God and him alone. It goes back to the word of God. He won't worship Satan. But John called this the lust of a man's eyes. See, the lust of a man's eyes. 
Materialism is living for that which our carnal minds desire to have. Not just what we crave, but what we see. And, and that's the other great ism that we're dealing with today. Not just hedonism, seeking pleasure. Materialism, seeking things. Living for this world. All the things that you want and you must have. And we're going to be tempted in the same way to possess the lust of our eyes. That Jesus dealt with it. When he saw all the cities, all the kingdoms, all that could have been him, if it, it belonged to him if he just worshipped Satan. Said one good thing about Satan. Worship God and him alone. Went right to the word of God, not going to engage. He certainly had the power to, but he didn't. What does that say? Are you better than God? Finally, he tempted the woman with the fruit that was desirable for gaining wisdom. Desirable for gaining wisdom. Now, when Satan tempted Jesus to test God and prove his deity, you know, jump off the top of the temple, right? Just jump. Show everybody how powerful you are. Show everybody who you are. Let everybody know. We're talking about the boasting of what a man has or does, according to John in 1 John chapter 2. John called it the boasting of what a man has and does. It has to do with egoism. There's another ism for you. Egoism. It's living for that which our proud hearts desire to be. If Jesus had done that, it would have been a statement of pride. It would have been a statement of, of, of self-assertedness. It would have been a statement of, affirm me, look at me, look at who I am. The wisdom Gaining wisdom, gaining, gaining authority, gaining knowledge, gaining all that, that he would have gotten by proving to everybody that he was God, but he didn't do it. He said, you shouldn't tempt. Do not tempt the Lord your God. You don't test God. It is written, don't do it. And we're going to be tempted in the same way to boast of what we have accomplished and what we've done and bring attention to ourselves. So to break it down, these three temptations, good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, are the same three weapons in some way, shape, or form that Jesus countered in the great temptation and that John warned us about in 1 John chapter 2. So, what do we learn here? You're no match for Satan. But the word of God is. Amen? Amen. So what happened? Well, what happened to the man? Verse 6, latter part. We learn there that she also gave some to her husband, that is some of the fruit, who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Things have now changed, haven't they? Let's look a little bit more closely at what happened with the man. The man was tempted to eat the forbidden fruit through the woman's direction. You see... The woman was tempted to eat the forbidden fruit through the serpent's deception, but the man was tempted through the woman's direction. He was not deceived, and the scriptures testify to this. He knew what he was doing. The woman did not. She was deceived. He was not. He was probably in the area when this took place, but he may not have been present when this temptation took place with the serpent. He may have been. At this point, he's definitely there. He's definitely present when she succumbed to the temptation, and then he partakes with her. But he defiantly rebelled against the word of God, knowingly and willingly defied the word of God. He did nothing to stop the woman from disobeying God, and he rather chose to openly defy God's express commandment that he had received firsthand. Why did he do this? (laughs) Well, that, we could be here all day trying to figure that one out. But why do you sin? Why do you do what you know is wrong? Oh, we could be here the rest of our lives trying to figure that one out. He must have convinced himself that God's word wasn't true. Something had to have changed in his heart for him to have taken this step. And you can ponder what would have happened if Eve fell and Adam didn't, but that's not what happened, so who cares? This is what happened. It was... His sin that condemned mankind to death. Not the woman's sin, his sin. He was the leader. He was responsible for the both of them. He was commanded by God. Before the woman was even created, he was commanded. And his sin brought death into the world that God had created and called very good. 
By the way, just pointing this out, back to the creationism studies we did in chapters 1 and 2, fossils cannot be a record of the evolution of life. Why? They're a record of death, the result of man's sin. Death didn't enter the world until man sinned. So fossils do not and cannot record the evolution of life if death didn't come into the world until after man was created. Are you with me? That's just plain logic. Well, the man and the woman, they fell. They fell from innocent perfection and they became sinners. Their eyes were indeed opened to their own shame, their own insecurities. They were embarrassed of their own bodies. They may have realized at this point that their descendants would be sinners since they had become sinners. In fact, the blessing of reproduction would now convey sin and death. They would just pass on sin. I know parents don't think about this probably when a child is born. They think about it when they become toddlers. But that beautiful little baby is a sinner, a big sinner, a big chubby sinner usually. You understand that? You look at the little baby first year, oh, they're so perfect, so innocent, so beautiful. And then they start to walk and talk, and then they, the sin nature becomes obvious. Parents know what I'm talking about. Maybe all of this was in their minds. I don't know. But they felt an immediate need to hide their fallen nature. They chose to cover themselves by the work of their own hands. And by the way, this is a vivid picture of religion and its attempt to cover men. That's what religion tries to do, cover up our shame, our sin. It doesn't do it. It doesn't effectively accomplish anything, really. Man can never cover himself by the work of his own hands. God must cover him the result of a blood sacrifice. Amen? Cain will find this out in future studies. You see, their shame and the guilt of disobedience caused them to hide from God. Verse 8. They're hiding from each other. They're hiding from God. This is what sin does. They had experienced intimate fellowship with God since the sixth day. Now, the exact period of time is not specifically stated. I don't know how long it was from the sixth day through the seventh day to the time where they fell in sin. Now, it was long enough for Satan to rebel in heaven and fall to earth, but it wasn't long enough for the woman to conceive children, so it was probably a couple of days to maybe a couple of weeks. Probably didn't take long at all. I'm sure it didn't. They, of course, had been commanded by God to reproduce, so therefore it was probably not more than a few days or a few weeks. I suspect it was probably within the week, but I don't know that. They recognized the sound of his presence in the garden. And this would be Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Son of God, in human form. Not in human flesh, but in human form, walking with them, fellowshipping with them. He appeared for fellowship and communion with them, and they're hiding from God. Why are they hiding from God? Well, they now felt the need to hide from God's presence because sin had separated them from God. And sin will do that. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We talked about sin, we talked about the attacks of the serpent, we talked about how to respond, we looked at Jesus and the scripture from John to really identify these attacks and learn how to respond to them. I think you have everything you need. Will you do it? Will I do it? I think we've got all of our training. I think we know what to expect. I really do. I think we have the scripture telling us, watch out. Watch out for the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boasting of what a man has or does. Watch out for it. When the devil questions, watch out for it. When he doubts, when he adds to, when he takes away, watch out for it. The question I have is, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. Because you can't. Sin has separated you from God. And unless sin is dealt with, you stand no chance. So how do we fix that? Christ came into the world. He died on the cross for your sins, and he rose again on the third day. He ascended into heaven, and there he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf, making intercession for us before the throne of God. And he's promised to come again to judge the living and the dead. And if you put your faith in the crucified and risen Christ, you have the power of God to resist the devil. Somebody say amen. You have the power of God to resist the devil. Still doesn't mean you go out there in the armor of God as described in Ephesians 6 and say, let's go. 
I caution you, even if you're an experienced fighter and, and, and you train in some martial discipline, never go looking for a fight. And if one comes to you, walk away. Avoid it. Why would we even ask to engage with the devil? But listen, he's going to. He's going to come for you. And you can say, the Lord rebuked you. That's what the archangel Michael did, according to the book of Jude. I think if 99 and 66, 100% of the time you walked away, you'd be just fine. And occasionally, once in a blue moon, you might need to engage. But if you do, engage with the word of God. I can't tell you when to engage and when not to. There may be a situation where you have no choice but to engage. By all means, that was the situation with Jesus. He was tempted in every way that we are. But what did he do? It is written. It is written. It is written. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this training today. Instruction, discipline that we need to be able to respond appropriately to the deceptions of sin. Whether they come from Satan, whether they're demonically inspired, whether they come through others, whether they come through the world or the culture, whether they just appear in our hearts because we're wicked, we need to do the same thing. Like Joseph, run away. Help us to understand this truth. Help us not to be drawn in by what our eyes desire or our hearts crave or our pride that would seek to boast of our accomplishments. But help us to be like Jesus, to lean on you and your word, and to look for you for strength, to rebuke the devil with the word of God and cling to you, that we might live lives that are upright, perfect in your sight, holy because we're separated to you. Oh, Lord, we know we're sinners, and it's because we're sinners that we cry out for a Savior. We acknowledge, Lord Jesus, that you died on the cross for our sins. You rose again on the third day, and you're coming again. We give our hearts to you, and we know that you cleanse us from all sin. You make us right in your presence. You do this work by the power of your Spirit in our hearts. We ask that you do this continual work in our lives by faith. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.